0: Ever since this series started, and Chris put out the list of what the, the lessons would be, you know, I love the Bible, I love our God, I love my spouse, I love our church, and then ending with I love history, I've had people ask me, really? Why did you get stuck with that? And the answer is I chose it, so that's how I got stuck with it, because I'm stuck with me. But But why history? Because immediately... I think for almost all of us, when you think of history, the first thing you think of is history class back in school. And I I have memories of Mrs. Kibler's world history class. It's just memorize dates, memorize names, memorize events, memorize places, spell them right, throw it all back on a test and then memorize some more. I hated it. I hated it. But the next year... I had Mr. Farrington for American history, and his concept was... Now, we did have to memorize a little bit, and I do remember some of it. George Washington was the first president of the United States. I've hung on to that piece of information. Thank you, thank you. But his concept of learning history wasn't memorization. And this isn't an exact quote, but basically what he would tell us over and over, history is not about memorization. The study of history is about thinking. History is to make us think and to make us analyze. And that's what I want us to do today. I want us to think about history and find some value in it. Now, history, you know, you can do a lot of things with history. It can be many things. And I've left you a blank there at the top of your page, a little blank spot. You can doodle while I talk about this. I don't care. But history can be a source of pride. A source of pride. You may have been part of a team that accomplished something, or you may have had an individual accomplishment in your past that you're just truly proud of. Maybe it's military service. Maybe it's the ministry team you serve on here. You can have a source of pride. I, I, for me, and there's a few of you here that can say this, I have actually been alive to witness the Chiefs winning the Super Bowl and the Royals winning the World Series. I take pride in that. You are really old. Thank you. I, pay, I take pride in that. I don't care. Whatever. But anyway, history can also be a source of bonding. You know, common history can bind you together. Families bind together around history. You know, stories of the weird uncle, stories of this. and You know, it binds you together. I know the Slaboff family, when I was growing up, Every year at Christmas and again around Mother's Day or my grandparents' anniversary, they were kind of close together. But every year the whole family would get together. We did that every year while my grandparents were alive. That bind us they, they were the glue that bound us together. Now other families are different. The Cooper family, my wife's family. They did not start having their annual get-togethers until the grandparents died. And so now we go to the old farm where no one lives. (laughs) Each family has their own thing, you know, so. But it's a bonding thing. History can also just be interesting, just interesting to see how things change. I have a book called Kansas City Then and Now. And, you know, each page will have an old-time picture and then what that location looks like now. Well, for those of us here in the Northland, of particular interest is the Antioch Mall. Yeah. Now, does anybody remember back when the Antioch Mall was an open air, you know, before they enclosed it, and you see all these nice women in their high heels and dresses taking their kids out for the afternoon? But then here's a picture of it after they enclosed it. You know, then and now, you can. Hey, history is kind of interesting to compare. Of course, you can drive by today, and there's nobody there. But hey, so, but history can be interesting just to look back and reminisce. History can be entertaining. I mean, just think of all the movies and the books written about real-life events. I mean, The Blind Side, very popular movie here recently about Michael Orr and the family that <laughs> took him in a few years ago, the movie A Beautiful Mind about the mathematician John Nash. It's very entertaining to look back at historical events. You can also base, uh, have books and movies based on fictional people set in real-life events, like the movie Titanic, the movie about Pearl Harbor, uh, the book and movie Gone with the Wind in the Civil War era, based on real events. and. Then there's also books and movies that, hey, people are fictional, the events are fictional, but still the context of history makes it come to life. Tom Clancy wrote a lot of books based on the Cold War era and just that feeling of impending doom I mean, all the events were fictional, but you knew the background, and it pulled it together and made it entertaining. So history can be entertaining. History can be inspiring. Like we just mentioned the, the movie The Blind Side. That's very inspiring to see someone come from nowhere and the assistance they received. And So history can be inspiring in many ways. History can also be depressing. I mean, I, I remember the, uh, when Ken Burns came out with his documentary series on the Civil War. And they showed that, I don't know, I think it was like three nights a week for two or three weeks, however long it was. And so I would watch that. I was fascinated by it. It was extremely well done and put together. And the history of it was amazing. But just watching the, the death and the carnage and all the aftermath because of an internal struggle. It's just, I found myself at the end of that two weeks, I, I realized, you know, I'm really depressed. And it was because of all that. History can be depressing. But history can also be funny. Let's lighten it up again. I like light. History can be funny. You share childhood stories or stories about raising your kids. Like last week, Chris shared the story about the Mexican policeman. So funny now. (laughs) Now. But, you know, it can be funny looking back at styles. You know, do you remember when men wore bright plaid pants bold color i mean it's, it's horrendous when Vicky and I first got married, the first apartment we lived in this man named Otis lived across the hall from us. He had a wardrobe of i mean now this man was eighty some years old, but he had a wardrobe of those bright colored plaid pants and then bright striped shirts where the colors didn't match, and that's all he wore all the time. He was i I long to live old enough, I can do that and get away with it, you know, but, but you look back at things. Looking back, Vicky was going through some old stuff, throwing it away the other day, and we came across a form with carbon paper. How many remember using carbon paper forms? Is that a nightmare? But, you know, you look back at history, it's just funny, some of the things you find. I mean, when's the last time you actually... Took a pen and paper and wrote a letter and mailed it. <laughs> I mean, you look back. How do we ever do that? just type out an email and send it. You know, it's. You look back. Things are funny how they change. Well, you know, someday people are going to laugh at us because of some of the things that we do, like email. I mentioned email. Hey, everybody does it now. But you know, someday that's going to be a thing of the past. They're going. Hey, you just pull this out. <laughs> you are done. You know. I mean, hey, I'm not typing anything. I'm just thinking. But on the subject of email, I, my wife gave me this, and I just feel obligated to use it because she doesn't give me very much. So, but when you're when you leave the office, you know, at, you have your email at work, and when you're going to be gone for a few days or something, you have to set your out of office response. So when people email you something, it tells them, "Hey, I'm not coming back till next Thursday," you know, so they know what's going on. Here's a top 10 list of out of office email replies. Number 10. You're receiving this automatic notification because I'm out of the office. If I was in, chances are you wouldn't receive anything. <laughs> Number 9. I'm currently out at a job interview and will reply to you if I fail to get that position. Be prepared for my mood. Uh, number eight i will be um, unable to delete all the unread worthless emails you send me until i return from vacation <laughs> number seven thank you for your email your credit card has been charged 5.99 for the first 10 words and a dollar 99 for each additional word in your message <laughs> little money making deal <laughs> okay this person put a lot more thought into it than i ever would Thank you for your message, which has been added to a queuing system. You are currently in 352nd place and can expect to receive a reply in approximately 19 weeks. This this is more my approach. Number five, I'm on holiday. Your email has been deleted. Get to the point. Number four, sorry I can't respond to your request. I've run away to join a different circus. Number three, hi, I'm thinking about what you've just sent me. Please sit by your PC and wait for my response. (laughs) Number two, sorry to have missed you, but I'm at the doctor's having my brain and heart removed so I can be promoted to management. (laughs) And number one, I will be out of the office for the next two weeks for medical reasons. When I return, please refer to me as Loretta instead of Steve. (laughs) You can do a lot of things with history. You can have fun. You can cool. History can be a lot of things. But what I want us to look at today is three things that history gives us. History gives us a lot of things. And you know, I like anything and anyone that gives me things, right? I like getting stuff. So I want us to look at three things that history gives us. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. Don't think this is all, but this is the three that I chose. And first, history gives us Understanding. History gives us understanding. And I've broken this into two points. Under understanding, the first thing is history gives us background and context. History gives us background and context. Understanding of the context of the times or whatever. Like in local events. I mean, you people laughed at me when I said I remember the Royals winning the World Series. Well, you only laugh because you know the historical context of that, that it's been longer than some of you have been alive let's just go with that (laughs) it's been a long time so the context Kansas City mayor election this last week for the first time in 90 years an incumbent mayor didn't make it through the primary election now if you if you've lived here and you know the context of history the last three or four years you understand that (laughs) history gives you understanding of the context world events it'll help you understand world events the economic crisis history will show you that there are financial cycles that have been around forever I mean the booms and the busts or as one writer put it the greed and the punishment cycles exist and we're in that cycle history of the Mideast you know you look at that and all these nations over there and they're clashing so why can't they just get along with each other right well, the reason they can't get along traces back to a couple sibling rivalries. Turn to the book of Genesis. Yes, there is Bible involved in the lesson today, it's, it's not just funny emails. In the book of Genesis, chapter 16, we see a sibling rivalry. Now, those of you that are doing the 90 day challenge, you read this in day one. So, foundational information here was in day one. Hope you caught it. But in Genesis 16 is the story of the birth of Ishmael to Abraham and and Hagar. Hagar being Sarah's being Abraham's wife's handmaid. This was Abraham's attempt to work around the fact that his wife was barren, but God had promised him kids, so I, I'll find a way to have kids. But Ishmael was born. In verse eleven, there of chapter sixteen, we see Angel of the Lord speaking to Hagar, saying, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man, his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. People far smarter than me have dissected those verses and pieced out the history of it, but basically, Ishmael is viewed by many as the original progenitor of most of the Muslims today. The website muslimvoices.org says many if not most Muslims believe they are inheritors of Ishmael's legacy making them along with the Jews the children of Abraham and therefore rightfully claiming Palestine as their home. That's the conflict. You have two different branches of Abraham's family claiming the same heritage the same location. That's the source of conflict. It's not a recent thing that President Carter or Clinton or Bush or anybody else can solve. It's centuries old, based on a sibling rivalry where somebody tried to work around God's plan. Another one in uh, Genesis 25, we see the story of the birth of Esau and Jacob. Isaac and Sarah give birth to twins, Isaac and, Re- Isaac and Rebecca, excuse me, Rebecca give birth to twins. In uh, chapter 25, verse 21 says, now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so they called his name Jacob. So we see the two brothers born, and the prophecy says the older shall serve the younger, Now, I I think most of us here have siblings. When you were growing up, if you were the younger, did you like the older one being in charge? No. But it's just the way it was. I'm the older one, I know. (laughs) But did it ever work the other way where a younger sibling... To seem more talented or more adept at doing something, and they begin to take charge over the older one. Do you know the conflict? You never saw that, did you, Pat? No, okay. <laughs> but again, a sibling rivalry developed between Jacob and Esau. Esau is commonly held to be um, basically the people from Esau, the Edomites, commonly are known, believed to be settled in the area that's now Jordan which is another natural enemy of israel so here again centuries old a conflict between brothers between siblings creates the world situation we live in today so understanding history can help you understand world events that's why there's unrest in the middle east that's why there's conflict conflict so understanding the the history gives you understanding of context of world events It also helps you understand when you're studying the Bible. Context for Bible study comes from knowing history. I have a book at home called Manners and Customs of Bible Lands, it's a history book. Not the kind of book I'm just going to sit down and read. But, you know, you pick a different chapter now and then when you need it. Like, for instance, the parable of the ten virgins at the wedding in Matthew 25. You know, a lot of that, you read that and you go, man, that is so crazy sounding compared with weddings that we understand. But you go back to history and say, hey, this is what weddings were like. At the time of Christ in Palestine, this is the sequence of events. This is the festival that it was. This is how it all took place. Well, suddenly that parable makes sense. It all fits together. So understanding history helps you study the Bible. You can, as already has been talked about in here during your reading in the 90 days, you can track the history of Israel in the Old Testament, their ups and their downs. Their ups are when they're obedient to God and following Him. The downs are when they turn to their own way and God has to judge them. And if you stop and think, that's that's us. When we're obedient to God, when we're lined up with His choice and His purposes, things are pretty good. But when we go our own way, the judgment has to come. And, and you say, okay, I can read that in Israel's history. Why don't I change? Well, Nicholas Bentley says, learning history is actually easy. Learning the lessons of history seems almost impossibly difficult. That's our problem. Learning the lessons of history. But understanding history will help you put in context the things you read in the Bible and how to apply it in your life. Understanding history also gives you context for how people react, how people react or how they act in certain situations. There's a, I uh, mean, look at this from an individual point of view. In our bulletin back in January, there was an insert. That uh, they put in called Tucson Tragedy Has the Fall Become Irrelevant? It was an article from Shepherd Press about the tragedy in Tucson, the shootings there. And one paragraph of that said To the extent that we lose sight of the redemptive work of Christ in history, we lose the ability to correctly understand our world. As Proverbs 4 teaches, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness, they don't know what makes them stumble. Thus, it's impossible to understand why tragedies like the one in Tucson occur if one doesn't understand the fall of man and the work of the Savior who rescues lost sinners. History explains current events. It puts them in context. It helps you understand why people do what they do. And we need to be aware of that. We need to understand how history explains current events. And so we can, when somebody says, well, why did this happen? How could this happen? You can say, well... It's the fall of man. Man is a sinner. And unless man accepts Christ as his personal Savior, this is the bent of his life. We can explain this if we understand history and are willing to apply it. So there are many other things we could go on, but history gives understanding by providing background and context. History also gives understanding by helping us set future expectations or helping us understand future expectations. I mean, seasons... No matter what it looks like outside, no matter that they say it may snow again tonight, we know from history that spring will come. Future expectations, it will be here. Also future expectations, financial cycles. We already talked about that. How Lows are followed by highs, which are followed by future lows. And much of that cycle is based on the fact, like the quote I just read we don 't learn the lessons of history. Uh, New York Times reported on the uh, report that the federal inquiry came out with about the two thousand and eight economic collapse and said that the financial crisis was avoidable and They compared the situation to the 1920s which were followed by the great depression and it um, I won't read all the stuff I put down here, but it's a really interesting article. But they said, we we should have seen this coming. We should have known because history has said a period we were in would be followed by a collapse. And it concluded with this phrase. It said, the greatest tragedy would be to accept the refrain that no one could have seen this coming and thus nothing could have been done. If we accept this notion, it will happen again. History repeats itself because we don't learn the lessons. So our future expectations, though, can be better understood and better put in context when we understand history. Technology, I wrote that in your notes, and I won't take time to go through all of this, but there's an article in Time Magazine a couple weeks ago titled, 2045, The Year Man Becomes Immortal. Scary article, scary, but very interesting from a very techie point of view, if anybody read it. (laughs) Basically, this computer scientist took all these different factors and he built formulas that he could extrapolate back in time to 1900 and predict accurately all the growth of technology and computers and everything. I mean, 1900, you had to start before vacuum tubes and work for it. But he, he worked this formula and then he applied it to the future. He said, hey, I can explain history. Now, I'll explain the future. And his formula says that by the mid-20s, 2020s, we will successfully reverse engineer the human brain, meaning we can replicate it in machine form. And by the mid-2040s, he estimates that the quantity of artificial intelligence, the computers we've created, will exceed the sum of all human intelligence. Now, he uses this to say man, could be immortal because now you will have all your brain power in a machine that will live forever. I kind of look at it as maybe man's expendable by that point, and the machines take over. But the future can be predicted based on the the past. The one thing I really want you to see out of this is our eternal future. If you're in the 90-day Bible reading, hang in there till day 90, okay, or day 82 for you because you're so far ahead. Whatever. But, but hang in there till the end. Because Revelation 21 and 22 describes the new Jerusalem. It describes the eternal home of Christians. It describes we win. <laughs> if you've accepted Christ as your Savior and you're one of his children, you win in the end. We know our eternal future is secure. And even though that's in the future... We know we can depend on what the Bible says because you can go back and all these things you've read before that you've seen come to pass. The Bible has proven accurate. And so with that history of accuracy, we can say, I know this is also accurate for the future. And our eternal future can be seen as secure because of understanding the context of history. So history gives understanding. But also, secondly, history gives instruction history gives instruction Aldous Huxley said that men do not learn very much from the lessons of history is the most important of all the lessons that history has to teach history has a lot to teach us our problem is we just don't learn it so we need to learn what history can instruct history gives instruction first thing I wrote down here and again not an exhaustive list but how to manage our lives History gives instruction on how to manage our lives. I mean, very simply, the seasons. Each season, you manage your life a little differently. You dress differently. You anticipate travel difficulties in the winter that you never think about in the summer. And different, you, you, just, you know things are different. Um, I don't know. Some of you will remember a bong, the lady from Sudan that came here for a while, and Vicky befriended her, and we got to know her pretty well. When she first came here, I mean, she, she was from northern Africa. All she knew was hot. Well, that first winter, she didn't know how to dress her kids. I mean, you know, it's, hey, it's not hot anymore. What do I, I turn the furnace up and we stay inside. I don't know, you know. Her history didn't teach her how to do these things. But our history, we knew, hey, this is what happens when the seasons change. This is how you handle it. We know how to manage our lives because of history. History also gives instruction on how to manage our lives as we get older or how to manage our lives when we become parents or anything else. That's, that one's pretty obvious. History will tell you how to manage your lives. I mean, look at somebody that's, you know, older than you and looks really good. You go talk to them and say, how would you do that? I want to do what you're doing. Or look at somebody that's about your age but looks older than you and go, what caused that? I don't want to do, you know, okay. You get the idea, right? Yeah. <laughs> History will teach you. History will also give instruction on how to treat your spouse. How to treat your spouse. If you were here a couple weeks ago, Kirk taught on I love my spouse. He used history. If you were here, he used the book of Leviticus, the historical record of the Old Testament sacrifices to teach us how we should love our, wives, to- our spouses totally, love tangibly, and love together. It was a history lesson. I, I don't want to diminish how much you liked it, But it was a history lesson. History teaches us how to treat our spouse. Um, Also, history will teach us or instruct us how to grow our relationship with God. It will teach us how to grow our relationship with God. I mean, Old Testament history. A week before Kirk, Pat Dunn taught on I Love Our God. He used the historical record of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And Moses talking to the children of Israel there when he taught us how to love God with all our heart, soul, and might. He used the history, the historical record, to teach us how to live our lives today. Old Testament history can be used today. New Testament history can be used. Turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians 8, we'll see that New Testament history can also be applied to our lives. And I mean, I would think we would all probably lean more towards saying the New Testament's more applicable than the Old to begin with. Not necessarily true, but what I want you to see is that the New Testament's not only applicable because it teaches doctrine, but because it has history. 2 Corinthians 8, starting verse 1, says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. And he goes on to describe how they gave out of their poverty, they gave to support other people. They gave to the needs of other people. And they did this by giving themselves. But we see it's a New Testament example of history. He's saying, hey, here's a real people. They lived. They lived in horrible poverty conditions, but here's how they lived out their Christian life. And we can learn from their history. We can learn from that. Pastor Bruce used this back in January when he taught on Mythbusters, modern money myths. And he used this to debunk a lot of our modern myths. And the conclusion was that based on the example of the Macedonian Christians... We can give generously and joyfully regardless of our situation. New Testament history can be applied to our lives. Also, modern history can be applied to our lives. The modern history can teach us how to grow our relationship with God. And by modern history, keep in mind, Old Testament, New Testament, modern. So modern doesn't necessarily mean the last five years, although you can. But, I mean, my example here is from 1519, so, you know, modern's relative. (coughs) But history can be used to help us grow our relationships. In 1519, Hernando Cortez led an expedition from Spain to explore Mexico. After landing in the New World and experiencing many hardships, he knew that many of his men were planning to desert him and sail back to Spain. To prevent this, he burned his ships, thereby preventing any hope of return. Now, you know, some of you are going, wow, he remembers something from Mrs. Kibler's class. No, no. Stephen Curtis Chapman put this in a song just a few years ago. I, I have shorter term memory than Mrs. Kibler, really. I had to look her up in the yearbook. I forgot her name even, so sorry. But Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote a song called Burn the Ships. And this, the first verse goes through that story of Cortez and how to prevent his men from returning, he burned the ships. Then the second verse applies that to us. He says, In the spring of new beginnings, a searching heart set sail, looking for a new life and a love that would not fail. On the shores of grace and mercy, we landed with great joy. But the enemy was waiting to steal, kill, and destroy. Quietly, he whispers, Go back to the life you knew. But the one who led us here is saying, Burn the ships. We're here to stay. There's no way we could go back now that we've come this far by faith. Burn the ships. We've passed the point of no return. Our life is here, so let the ships burn. And the point is, when we become Christians, there are things in our past we have to leave behind. We have to burn them. Burn those ships. For some of you, it may have been a relationship. You may have had to find new friends. Some of you may have been, hey, I just have to find new hobbies, things to do with my time. Some may have had to find new jobs or move to new neighborhoods. The point is, for us to move ahead in our Christian relationship, there are things we have to leave behind in order to avoid the temptations of the past life, in order to avoid the old habits that would draw us back down. We have to burn those ships and move ahead. History can be used to teach us how to grow our relationship with God history gives instruction in many different ways but now the third point (coughs) about history history gives encouragement history gives understanding it gives instruction but history gives encouragement also and this is my favorite i like encouragement and the first point here is god uses history to encourage me God uses history to encourage me. And he does this, again, in a long list of reasons. I've just picked three or four here. But he uses history to encourage me by showing me that God forgives and restores. God forgives and restores. Turn to Matthew chapter 26. And this is a story we're all familiar with. I mean, I'm not breaking new ground with this here. But I want us to look at the historical record of Peter, when we talk about God forgiving and restoring. <clears throat> so in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 31, Then Jesus said to them, he's talking to the disciples, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Verse 33, Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Turn over to verse 57. And you see how Peter followed that statement up. When he said, even if I have to die, I'll follow you. In verse 57, it says, And those who laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. The first step in any fall is to create distance. The first step. When we step away from God, we normally don't just jump off a cliff first day. No, it's just that first step. But, uh, you know, I'll skip my quiet time for a week. I'm, I'm okay without it. And then you take the next step. It's a step at a time. And Peter's first step was that he began following at a distance. And then we see in verse 69 what, what culminates from that. Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth but again he denied with an oath i do not know the man and after a while those who stood by him those who stood by, came to him and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, because your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the words of Jesus, who had said to him, Before the rooster crows you will deny me three times. Then he went out and wept bitterly. So Peter... We see the story of how he fell, how he sinned, how he he betrayed Christ and denied him. But turn to John chapter 21. This is the part of history that's encouraging. John chapter 21. This is the encouragement. God uses this history to encourage me. Because God forgives and restores Peter. John chapter 21, verse 15, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. We see here Jesus dealing with Peter, dealing with the betrayal and reaffirming Peter's love. Through this, we see Jesus forgiving. God forgives and restores. He didn't just forgive Peter. He restored him. Because you read through the book of Acts, the early part there, the development of the church, the preaching at Pentecost, that was Peter. Peter was the leader there. And then he wrote the book of 1 Peter and 2 Peter to help us understand how to live a Christian life. God not only forgave him, he restored him and gave him a ministry. That's encouraging to me. God forgives and restores. I can be encouraged by that part of history. Also, under history being encouraging, God provides for our needs. God provides for our needs. Um, Elijah with the widow, 1 Kings chapter um, 17 where he came to the widow and she said, I don't have any food, I can't feed you. And Elijah said, if you feed me, God will provide for you through all this drought. Your, your meal and your oil will not fail. And they ate through that entire drought. God's promise came true. He provided for Elijah and for the widow that he was staying with. And we can go through story after story of how God protected people in the Bible, how he provided for them uh, physically. He provides for you in a relational sense. Now, if you're doing the 90-day reading, this was um, day 19. Started in Judges, ended in First Samuel. But I hope you didn't miss Ruth right there in the middle. Beautiful story, short, four chapters. But the story of Ruth, she committed, I mean, widowed at a young age committed to her mother-in-law I'm going back to your home with you I've committed to your family to the God of your family that's where I want to be and God provided for her a husband when she got there he provided for her a near kinsman who took her in and was her husband and she became the great-grandmother of King David She's in the lineage of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful story how God provided for her because she was faithful to Him. God provides for our needs. We can apply that in our daily life. In each of these cases, it wasn't like God just wrote a blank check and said, Here, go do what you want. But as people obeyed Him, as they paid the price to do what He led them to do, He provided for them. And that's true in our lives. History encourages me also because God is faithful. God is faithful. Psalm 136, and I, I, yeah, I wish we had time to read this, but this is one of those fun things I'm cutting. Uh, but it's a great psalm because it's a history lesson wrapped with praise. You read the first four verses here. It says, "Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for His mercy endures forever. O give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His mercy endures forever. To Him who alone does great wonders, for His mercy endures forever. To Him who by wisdom made the heavens, for His mercy endures forever. And it goes on through the history of creation and through the history of Israel being led out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. And then... Concludes in verse 26 with, Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven, for his mercy endures forever. Every verse ends with that phrase, for his mercy endures forever. As he's going through history, writing about the history of creation, the history of Israel, the history of God providing, every verse ends, his mercy endures forever. God is faithful. God is faithful. No matter what stage of life we're in, what stage the world is in, God is faithful, and we can trust him. Trust him. We can look at this, you know, at a, at a big corporate level. God is faithful. <laughs> Spring comes. God is faithful. Kids grow up and eventually leave. God. God is faithful in many ways. God's been faithful to us as a church. I mean, our church budget through this economic crisis has not suffered to the point of loss. Um, it's okay. <laughs> the Shama campaign. Many of us gave beyond what we ever could have thought of and didn't really go hungry because of it. God's faithful. God provides. God is faithful. On a personal level, we can all give stories of how God is faithful. I want to read, and I'll read just a very short portion of it, but an article I read about Billy Donovan, basketball coach at the University of Florida. Um, Don't know him personally. Won't vouch for a lot of other things in his life, but I read this story, and it it was very touching. It was about, and I don't remember the year actually now, but um, yeah, to November of 2000, his wife was pregnant and had, and the child died in her womb and was stillborn. And he's talking about the pain and the grief of that, and uh, having to go through that experience with her. And it says once. Uh, Christine is his wife. Once Christine was stabilized, Donovan left the hospital and headed home. Seven months earlier, in just his fourth season as coach, he had guided Florida to the NCAA title game for the first time in school history. Now he was wiping away tears as he drove home to tell his three children they'd never beat their baby sister. He stopped at a red light. He says, quote, I'm sitting there, and I look over at this church on the corner, and there's a sign on the marquee that says God is good all the time. And I thought within myself, what is good about this? But then he said he thought, and the longer he thought, he realized, I've got an incredible wife. I've got three healthy kids. I've got a job most people envy. He said, when bad things happen, we always fail to remember the good things. God is good. We may be going through a trial that's not understandable. We may be going through something that we yeah, I don't know what this is going to do. I don't know what's good about this. Maybe that's not good, but God is good. God is good. Never lose sight of the good things in your life. History will teach us God is faithful. History also teaches us, encourages me, because God uses ordinary people. God uses ordinary people. Harry Truman once said, study men, not history. Study men, not history. Study the men. Because that's what it's about. God uses ordinary people. We've heard the story of the the young boy with his lunch that Jesus took and fed over 5,000 people. Wasn't anything unusual about that young boy, other than that he gave up his lunch. But God did something special with an ordinary person. The disciples. You look at the history of the 12 disciples. The vast majority of them were common fishermen. Thrown in IRS agent with Matthew being a tax collector and then Judas kind of a activist wacko but by and large they're just common working people like we are but God did extraordinary things with ordinary people Uh, the founding fathers of our country mostly farmers small businessmen they were not anything extraordinary in and of themselves but they were used to accomplish great things so history encourages me because God uses ordinary people and I can identify with ordinary people But the the last point I want to make here under History Gives Encouragement is God uses my history to encourage others. And when I say my, write the word M-Y. Don't write Jerry's history. Because it applies to all of us. God uses your history. God uses my history to encourage others. And you've got my history. What are you talking about? My personal history? Are you kidding me? Because most of us look at our personal history and we do one of two things. We either forget it You know, just shove that in the past. That's gone. Or we devalue it. And we say, well, that's me. You know, it doesn't matter what happens. we, We either forget or devalue it. But God allows our history, whether it's failures or successes, whether it's high points or low points, God allows our history for a reason. You look at the life of David, and I've got these things listed in there. His life was full of near-death experiences. I mean, he faced a lion and a bear, barehanded. He faced Goliath, the giant. King Saul sought to kill him multiple times over a period of years although this was not a near death experience still he he witnessed the death of his baby son that's got to be heart wrenching and then his own son Absalom sought to kill him when he revolted David understood what it was like to be near death and now we come to Psalm 23 and he writes in verse 4 yea though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I will fear no evil for you are with me now if I wrote that yeah, maybe I could be poetic and it would sound good, but you'd read it and you'd go, well, yeah, fine. Since he been near death? I mean, you know, a couple times I've been sleeping and Vicky's rolled over and elbowed me in the face and I thought I was attacked, but... No, I couldn't write that and have meaning behind it. David, you can't count the number of times he was expecting to be killed. And he could write, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. There's meaning in it, because of David's personal history. Our personal history matters to God. God values my history. God values my history. Psalm 139, he says... you know, that he, he knew us before we were born. He planned our life before we were even born. Well, if he took the time to plan me, then he values what happens to me. God values my history, and God desires to use my history. God desires to use my history. Last week, when Terry was talking about the 90-day challenge and how she was learning that reading through the Old Testament and seeing things repeated over and over and over, details matter to God. That's what she said. Details matter to God. Well, that's true. God allows the details in my life to happen so I can encourage others. God allows that. Vicky and I, well, the first time Vicki was pregnant, she had a miscarriage at about five months. And, and man, we're out of town, didn't know anybody. I mean, it was... It was It was a bad experience for us. But since then, we've both been able to use that experience to encourage others who are experiencing the same thing. And encourage them with how God provided for us at that time and how we came closer together. And we were able to use that. God allowed that in our life. Not to punish us, not to make us feel horrible, but so we could use it. God wants to use my history. Jeff Riddle gave a testimony a couple of weeks ago, three or four weeks ago, about the financial makeover that he and Shelley had gone through. And, I mean, that's not an easy thing. Number one, it's not an easy thing to do. Number two, it's not an easy thing to get up in front of people and tell them about. But Jeff did that because God, he knew God allowed that in his life for a reason. One, to make him stronger, but two, so he could encourage others. God uses our history to encourage others. The last line I put there in your notes, don't ever forget this. History is not an abstract concept intended to torture students. You know, It's not there just to beat you over the head with memorization. History is there. But God's in control. God is in control, and history is there to be used for our betterment, even our personal history, even the things in our past that are painful. They're there so God can use them. So I hope you have maybe not a love for history, but I hope you have a better appreciation for history now and what history gives us with the understanding and instruction and especially the encouragement we can get from history. I hope that's been a gain for you today. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for being here with us as we met today and we do thank you for your word and the encouragement and the instruction we can gain from it just use this now to take us forward in our lives for you and just pray that you'd be in the worship service give chris strength in his voice and in his lungs to be able to to uh, give your word forth as you would for him to do in jesus name we pray amen